This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. The next major event on the USGA docket is the Women's US Open in just three weeks. For more information on the event, visit 2017USWomensOpen.com. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another podcast for the Knockdown. It is Monday morning after the U.S. Open. I am sitting in Michael Bamberger's expansive suite at the Pfister Hotel in downtown Milwaukee. We probably could have gotten the entire staff in here if we had to. But um, we're going to talk about the U.S. Open. We also have a lengthy discussion on any other number of topics. Just as a tip off to the listener, because Michael and I have crushing deadlines on Sunday night, we recorded the bulk of this conversation a few days ago. It's going to be so subtly linked up with this first part, I'm not sure you're even going to notice, but um, I did feel compelled to acknowledge that rip in the time-space continuum. So, Michael, let's let's get serious here. What did you think of this U.S. Open? Well, you know, the, the, going in, the, uh, the course was the star, uh, and at some point the players are supposed to take over and become the story, and here we are Monday morning. We're still talking about the course more than the players, so that's probably... Not a good thing. I don't think it will go down in history as a memorable U.S. Open for the play. Um, I felt bad for you, and as I was leaving the golf course last night, since I was done and you were writing for the magazine, you had to write something that was actually going to hold up beyond one day, unlike my own story. What did you wind up writing? What did you think? Well, I thought it had potential to be to be a great U.S. Open because Saturday was so much fun with the 63 and, and the various fireworks, and it it was kind of a giddiness, like, I can't believe this is U.S. Open and guys are going so low. And then Sunday, when the wind was, was whipping, I thought, this will be a, a brutal just war of attrition, and it'll really, the contrast will really make it stand out. But as it turned out, the wind kind of laid down for the leaders to a large degree, and it presented a certain amount of challenge, but the course was still so soft and so wide that Sunday was honestly a little boring. I mean... All credit to Brooks Kepka. He didn't miss a shot, and that, that burst of you know three birdies to close out the tournament was that was that was spectacular stuff. But you never felt like anyone was really going to catch him or even push him, and there weren't enough guys in the mix. I mean, very early on, he and Brian Harmon separated themselves and got that little late run from Matsuyama that was hard to get super excited about. And it's like, oh, the open's over. <laughs> I, I felt the exact same way. And we were together around high noon on Sunday, and the wind was really whipping. And it really did feel like a British Open atmosphere, and it felt like anything could happen, but then nothing happened. And uh, not that nothing happened. I mean, someone won the U.S. Open, and I'm not demeaning in any way. I mean, it's a great accomplishment for Brooks Koepka, and I'll follow him around for the rest of his life. Like Curtis said late last night, your life's changed. You don't know it yet, but it has. So it's neat a guy won the U.S. Open. But that aside, it looked like it could be more. The course looks beautiful, and, um, and I'm not dismissing the course either. Uh, it just didn't play out the way they wanted it to. But I do wonder, tell me your, your feeling about that. You had so many uh, uh, names on that board. Well, every last one of them that was in contention was looking to win his, the person was looking to win his first major. How do you think that influences your own attitude about covering and writing the tournament? How do you think it influences uh, the fan watching? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're in this run of first-time major championship victories and I think it's good for the sport. I mean, we've minted some new stars, and people are, have been waiting a long time for Ricky Fowler to win one of these, so there's a lot of built-in interest there. I think Justin Thomas, you know, he's obviously gone to a different level this year, and what he did on Saturday, um, it would have been massive if he could have gotten it done. You know, if you're talking about a Tommy Fleetwood and a Brian Harmon, I think there's less interest. The, the casual fan who only watches maybe the Masters and the U.S. Open, you know, they – they click on and they're looking for stars. They need people they've heard of. And a lot of those guys on the board, they probably didn't know very well. So I think, you know, I mean, the TV ratings bear this out. I think there was not as much fan interest as you might get with some more established players. But within golf, people like us who follow this stuff, I, I think it's fun when you get a, a, a young, telegenic, charismatic first-time winner. I mean, it just it turns up the volume on, on everything. And Kepka's He's he's interesting because the way he plays a game is is super fun to watch, and he looks great on TV. I don't know how much fans connect with him. There's kind of an aloofness there, and um, I'll be curious to see if he becomes really popular 
in the wake of this or if it's just um, if it's just something that doesn't quite register. What, what's your take yeah, on that? Yeah, I mean, he reminds me of like, you know, some baseball stars from the 60s, even like Al Kaline, you know, they hit a home run. It's like, this is what I do. You yeah. know, wh- why are you getting excited? This is what I do. <laughs> so like he won the U.S. Open. He's only won one other PGA Tour event. Nothing. I looked up the clips from when he won the Phoenix Tournament. He was more excited winning that Phoenix tournament than he was winning the U.S. Open, which is uh, which is extraordinary. So yeah, I think uh, you, you know if you have a mix of guys who have won majors and haven't, that always lends to a certain natural tension. And you have some people root for the underdog, the guy who hasn't won, the, some will root for the for the you know the Ricky Fowler that Jason Day already has. But we didn't have that uh, this week. Alan, if you were the uh, USGA's executive director, Mike Davis, um, if you were, then. There would be an executive director who was taller with more hair, but <laughs> leaving that aside, Mike's a very nice person, loves golf, cares deeply about the game. I don't think there's any question about that. I think he's in a very tough spot. I really shouldn't pin it just on Mike because it's not Mike. It's really the whole organization. I wonder, looking at this tournament, not Oakmont really. Things went crazy there, no fault to their own. Chambers Bay was, was odd. Do you think there's any crisis that's way too strong word. Do you think there's an identity problem within the USJ of what they want this championship to be in the context of the, we know what the Masters is. Every year we know what the Masters is. We know what the British Open is. We used to know what the US Open is, but now I feel like we don't. I mean, it's a crisis of their own making because they've been so negligent in regulating equipment that now the courses they want to take the tournament to are way, way too short. And even at 7,800 yards, this was a joke. I mean, it was, Brooks Koepka hit nothing longer than a seven iron into a par four, except for once all week. And so, I mean, I've been saying forever, to really test these guys, to have, you know, mid to long iron and some par fours and some three-shot par fives and some tough par threes, it has to be 9,000 yards. And even at 7,800 yards, you know, Koepka reduced it to nothing. He hit a three-wood 370 yesterday on 18. So... The, the idea that the U.S. Open, can the winner can be around par, it's impossible without tricking up the golf course. And, you know, put, by, by Chambers Bay, they tried to push the greens to the edge, and, and they, they pretty much killed them. And just like they did at Pebble Beach, you know, they, they, they push these courses so far to try and protect par that they, they often cross the line. And if now if obviously if it had been dry all week and, and this, this course was firm and fast, it would have been a lot tougher. But... If you look at the Open in June, unless you're in California, it pretty much rains every U.S. Open at some point during the week, it seems like. You know, happened at Marion, happened at Oakmont. I mean, you have to – the idea that you're going to get firm, fast conditions is wishful thinking at best. So I don't have that much sympathy for the USJ in that they've been totally asleep at the wheel as these guys are driving it farther and farther. And it's not all the ball. I mean, you look at Kepka, how much time he spends at the gym. I mean – there's a lot of factors. There's, it's track man, it's nutritionists, it's Joey D. I mean, there's so many reasons they're doing it, but the fact is they're doing it, and the USJ has not responded in kind. So, I mean, Shinnecock, I know they're building new tees, but Shinnecock is way too short for an open. Pebble Beach is way too short for an open. Um, you know, Oakmont, Dustin reduced it to nothing. That used to be the scariest golf course on the planet. So... The, it, they've created this identity crisis, and I think they're going to have to accept that even Parr is no longer going to win a U.S. Open unless something freaky happens. And um, this was this was an ongoing debate all week on Twitter. Should we just enjoy the birdies and, and accept and accept that it's it's entertaining, or should we pine for a tougher, more penal test as we traditionally used to see? I mean, what, what's your take on what the Open should be? Well, you know that. That's a really interesting question, and the whole notion of par is actually becoming sort of obsolete, but 280 is not obsolete. In other words, it's a cross-country game, and can you navigate the cross-country demands in a certain number of strokes? That never has changed. That is basically the only thing, really, that golf stands for, is is navigating the land. Um, So they really have to do something to dispel this notion of par, and they have to just do something to dispel this notion of the seven iron. The seven iron is not the seven iron. It's just a club with loft on it. And so part of our problem is terminology. We legislate drivers, or the USGA legislate, and also there's way, and they say they have to do this. There's, the USGA needs to sell itself in a way 
when they say they, they is us. Right. They represent us. They legislate the length that drivers can go uh, by shaft length and head size, coefficient restitution. Um, it, they obviously went way overboard and the ball goes too far. But now the only way really, if that's, they're not undoing that. We yeah. might wish that they could or would, but they won't. So all that's really, the only really way to legislate the length that the driver will go is by setting up the courses completely differently. So when you say, well, you know, Shinnecock's too short, make it shorter. You know, say, quote, take the driver out of their bag. Yeah. You could basically say to them, that driver that you have in your bag is no longer a legal club. And you know how we're going to make it illegal? We're going to give you a golf course where you cannot hit it. I, well, yeah. But because 9,000 yards, as you're speaking of, which, by the way, is about the right number, is seven hours and 22 minutes on the golf course. I know. And nobody wants that. No, it's a slog. But you're right. I mean, they, they could they could have 10-yard wide fairways. They, there's a lot of things they can do. But hitting the ball long and straight is a skill. And it's one of the most thrilling parts of the game. And it's... And do you want to take away the advantage these players have worked for and that they deserve? So if you have a U.S. Open where you can't hit driver, first of all, it's a little boring. And secondly, it's, it's not real golf because it's such an important part of the game. So what have you wrought? And then it gets to another part, which is all of modern life. All of modern life's become a TV show. And the TV show that's called the U.S. Open requires Dustin Johnson to hit a driver with that ball in the air for five and a half or six seconds before it lands. And Fox paid a lot of money for that TV show. Um, uh, and they've got to deliver. Uh, yeah. So it's very problematic. So we've, we've done a good job here of identifying the problems. What possibly are the solutions? I mean, I, I guess it, it's, a, it's a mix of things. You can certainly have... You know, Chambers, Chambers Bay and this place had such wide fairways. You know, they were they were designed to play in the wind, and they all they were too wide for the open. And I guess they could have just they could have made the fairways here 35 yards instead of 60. Still would have been pretty wide and somewhat accommodating in the wind. But if it, if you caught a windy day and the fairways are firm, guys have been in the fescue the whole time, and it would have been kind of Mickey Mouse. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. the The problem is that the the toothpaste is out of tube on how far these guys hit it. And all these classic courses were built in a different era. So you're trying to synthesize a modern game to an old playing field. And there's not an easy solution. And they did do it. You know, when they went to Marion, they, I think they, and I bought the whole thing that they were selling prior to, the, prior to that U.S. Open at Marion in 2013. Afterwards, I started to realize how much that they didn't. But when they went to Marion, their fairways looked like a joke. They looked like a little sidewalk, and there was absolutely nowhere to hit it. And guys basically, you know, ironed the way around. And what, did 280 win that? Or maybe, what What the guy win with? One over? One yeah. under? One over? Yeah, even just one, yeah. So, I mean, and they, they had bad weather, as yeah. you said. They, they almost always have bad weather. I think there's really only one solution, one simple solution. It's been talked about a million times. Um, but I think really, if, the, if this if this U.S. Open at Aaron, Aaron Hills shows one thing, it's really how important this possible solution would be is give them a golf ball to play with. I really think that I, I, I can't think of another way that you're going to make Shinnecock Hills relevant. As you say, still allow them to hit driver short of creating a golf ball where Dustin Johnson still has all his advantages that he should have. He deserves them. He's earned them. But the golf ball doesn't go 375 like the guy hit it uh, yesterday on 18, Brooks Kepka, but goes 308. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that, except these guys are so fine-tuned. They spend so much time perfecting every element of their launch conditions and their spin rates and how they interact with all the other variables and on their driver and their, cl their other clubs. And so... Now you're going to make them prepare differently for one tournament, which is theoretically the most important one of the year. And it's like, when do you start working? When do you start practicing with that ball? I mean, you want to play well at Memorial with your normal ball, but then you have to be practicing this other ball that flies different. And I, I don't know. I, I think 20 years ago was the time for the USGA to be proactive, and they've they've just kind of shot themselves in the foot. And we're going to continue to have this identity crisis around the Open. We just are because there's 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 no solution now that really makes sense. They, they, they've missed their chance. But well, then why, why does the RA not have an identity crisis? Why do they say, just come play our golf course, what you shoot, you shoot. If you can't hit driver, we don't care. 
we're still gonna give we're still gonna give that medal to what do they call it you know something of the uh, to somebody <laughs> yeah and everyone well, loves it that's true no one complains that you know 17 under lost the British Open last year but at the same time I mean do you remember the the problems at, at St Andrews in 2015 you know they cut those greens too short and they tried to make them too fast and normal Scottish winds stopped play and that was a setup problem where they said okay this course is too short they're gonna destroy it let's try and let's try and trick it up and you know that backfired too George Spieth probably lost the Grand Slam because of all that craziness he had that four putt when he should have they, they shouldn't have been playing in the wind I mean but they've had is, their that own really, issues. is that really correct you know I, I didn't realize that the greens were I just thought they had excessive crazy nutty winds I didn't no, realize no. that the greens were so extreme they were playing golf courses every other course in on that part of the coast was still playing that afternoon because they had the normal links courses. Are you speaking of Fife Man? Yeah, Fife. The King the, the Kingdom. Kingdom Man. Yeah. I know. I was at Ely when there was no <laughs> I know. Ely's on this peninsula that's buffeted. The wind comes to you at every single direction at once. You wouldn't think it's possible by laws of physics, but it happens. You're in a swirl the entire time. It's just right. amazing. And we were playing there. And so. St. Andrews was. So I guess the but St. Andrews are very, very exposed, especially some of those holes. No, they just. St. They, I didn't realize that those greens were excessively fast. Oh, completely. I mean, as you know, Lynx courses can't have super fast greens right. because, because of the wind. But they, they pushed it to the edge at the old course, and they got bitten. So... The, so what about what about a golf ball for all four majors? Man, I don't know. And and, and wouldn't I mean, that, that be would, that would make more sense? Just wouldn't it be one. neat to separate the four majors from all the others? You have a golf ball that you're going to play the majors with. Oh, and by the way, the players' championship, you can use whatever ball you want because you're not a major. <laughs> no, the players, you have to use the Costco ball. <laughs> um, I guess, but I mean, it still feels weird. It, it's like. You know, all year long, we're going to use 10-foot rims in NBA, but the finals, we're going to put them at 10-foot 6 inches. I mean, it's just a slightly different game, and it's a similar skill set, but the game still plays differently. And I, I, don't, I can't say I love it. All right, I'm already getting bored of this topic. I'm not Mike Davis. I can't fix this. I don't think Mike Davis can fix this. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, all right, we survived another Open. I'm curious, Michael. What was the first U.S. Open that you covered or attended or worked at? Well, may I go one back from that and say the first one I ever attended? Yes, please. It, I, uh, my, the first one I ever attended was the 1985 U.S. Open at Oakland Hills on, as Herb Wynn used to say, the outer rim of Detroit. <laughs> and uh, Herb liked that line so much he used it more than once. Cardinal sin in our industry. Uh, Bart, uh, Roger Angel once referred to Bart Giamatti. Paul's father, uh, who was formerly the commissioner of baseball, as a quote career four hundred talker. <laughs> I used to I used to cite Roger when I used that, but now I just so often don't even cite Roger anymore. I want the listenership to know it's Rogers. Okay. Um, Nineteen eighty five, I caddied um, in the U.S. Open for a qualifier named Larry Rents, who was a uh, former University of Maryland uh, golfer, and. Who was his coach, Alan? Even though I know you probably don't know the name Larry Renzel, but you've seen it in print before because I know you're such a faithful reader. But who <laughs> was Larry Renz's golf coach? Peter Taravanian? No, but you've got the right basic <laughs> idea. His golf coach was Fred Funk. No way. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to think that's 1985. And here's Fred Funk all these years later, still a highly, highly competent golfer. Um, so that was... That was you already had the idea to write your book, The Green Road Home, and that's why you were caddying? Or you decided yes. to caddy and then the book came out of it? A little bit of both, but I had hoped to write it. Certainly, I had hoped to write it. I wanted to caddy, and I had hoped to write a book. And by that point, i sure I had a uh, book contract and a $5,000 book contract. We know how that goes. But I did have a book contract. And uh, the guy I caddied for was a tremendously long hitter and a great guy. And we were both dead broke, of course, and we stayed with a local family. And after he missed the cut, Larry Rentz uh, was a young professional at the time, um, we uh, parked cars on the front lawn of the people with whom we were staying. Uh, in other words, we, that's how close to the golf course uh, they live. And you and I have a lot of experience doing that. I mean, yes, I that, love those people. I'll, I'll explain to the listenership uh, our general approach, if I may speak for us uh, jointly here on parking as relates to U.S. Opens. What's the cardinal rule? Well, it, it, it transcends U.S. Open. Basically, 
if you park farther than 100 yards from the clubhouse, you're a bad person. That's, I think, kind of how we feel about it. Yes, and I think it, that's well said. It's the ultimate uh, more test. More broadly, I think we're trying to avoid shuttle buses. Oh, no. Shuttle bus is death. Yes. Uh, only chumps take the shuttle bus. So yes. you do whatever you have to. You lie to the security guys. You bribe the kids. You must get within visual of the, of the U.S. Open venue or else you failed. And we'll pay cash money. Yeah. And we'll, we'll expense it. And that's what Rents and I were doing. So we, and we so we were organizing. We probably got 30 cars on the uh, front uh, or as they say, when carriers on the front yard of uh, this uh, this suburban house near near Oakland Hills, and then, and uh, we had a sign that said like "Park with the Pro" or something like that. There's, and, and I don't know, Larry was giving out golf tees or something. <laughs> but anyway, we had a, we had a lot of fun, and the uh, uh, and that was the year that uh, the Caddies came up with one of the all time great names. Everyone knows, of course, that Andy North won his second U.S. Open Andy, uh, that week. He won three tour events, Westchester, U.S. Open, U.S. Open. How's that? Strong. Uh, do you know who uh, finished second? In 1985. I, would, I, could, I could just come up with a random guess, but no, I do not. Uh, T.C. Chen. Chen. Oh, and, yes. And, and what were the caddies calling him within minutes of, the, uh, of that championship being over? Well, double chip, double Close. Hit. You got the right idea. And then you, you explain to the listenership why two chip Chen. Two chip, of course. TC uh, Chen, two chip Chen. God, I just one of the best ever. One of the best. Yeah, for those who do not know this great mythology, TC Chen was this unknown guy from Taiwan, right? Yes. And he had a chance to win the US Open. It would have been probably the greatest upset in golf history if he'd done it. And down the stretch, his ball's in the rough, he goes to chip it, and on the follow through, his club hits the ball for a second time, which of course is a penalty and blew himself right out of the open. But right. And, uh, and, and Herb Wynn wrote then, this has always stuck with me. It's just such a beautiful, generous kind of, oh, and he was an old man then, oh, how I would have loved to have seen our first Asian win our national championship or something like that. I just thought it was such a generous way of viewing the field. You know, uh, in other words, like here we are at the U.S. Open. And, you know, there would be a natural interest in a Ricky Fowler, Brent Snedeker, someone that we've seen along the way. But it's really, it takes a certain generosity of spirit to say, how about some unknown person from a developing golf country and a developing country period to win our national championship? You know, from her win with Yale and Oxford and everything else in his background, I thought that was generous. I've tried to keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and that was way before golf was such a global game. There was, there was no golf channel. There was no world golf championships. So these players who came from overseas were exotic, right? Yeah. I mean, you hardly saw them all year long. They just turned up. You didn't know if they could play or not. A guy like TC Chen could play and no one knew it. And now, one quick message from the USGA. You may know the USGA for their 14 annual championships, which are widely regarded as the ultimate tests in golf. But there's more to the USGA than just the golf competitions. In fact, USGA scientists are currently working on what they call health of the game solutions. They're helping golf facilities reduce their reliance on water. The USGA innovation team has launched a resource management app that helps course superintendents better allocate their resources and ensure a better experience for golfers. That better experience is exactly what the USGA wants golf to be both now and 50 years down the line in the future. That's why they're also modernizing the game's rules in conjunction with the RNA over in Scotland. And with that, they want your help. Visit USGA.org to check out the list of proposed rules changes that are expected to go into effect January 1, 2019. You can share your feedback with golf's governing bodies there online and help them in their grassroots growing of the game. What was your first U.S. Open off? Well, it would have been as a fan, 1992 at Pebble Beach. So I, really guess, um, yeah. I just I finished my finals at UCLA on Friday of the second round. I drove home on that Saturday, and I, I went out for the final round. Was that Saturday the crazy wind? Yeah. And then on Sunday, you know, went went to the tournament. And then Monday, I started my shift as a cart boy at Pebble Beach. Wow. And all the guys were so incredibly bitter because they had spent, you know, six months just grinding and working crazy hours. And the month leading up to the Open, they were, they were working around the clock practically. And I just, I just show up, college boy, here to make some tips and play some golf. And I've never gotten the stink eye like I did on that Monday. What was the setting in which you met Mark Mulvoy? And perhaps you should explain to the listenership who is Mark Mulvoy. Although, of course, as yeah. Mulvoy would tell us, they all know. Yeah, although in fairness, it should be pronounced 
Monvoy. Uh, Mark Monvoy is a legend in magazine circles. He was the managing editor of, of Sports Illustrated for many, many years. Also a diehard golfer, member of Pine Valley and the RNA and assorted other clubs. And I, he, when in my heyday as a child reading Sports Illustrated, he used to write this publisher's memo at the front of the magazine. It was signed, Mark Mulvoy in his fancy script. And so I knew his name just as a reader, but my dream in life was to write for SI going back to probably the junior high newspaper days. And so at Pebble Beach, we used to get these printed out sheets of the next day's tea times. I'd always flip through them because it'd be Michael Jordan or whomever. And I saw the name Mark Mulvoy. And this was the spring of 91. I had just started at Pebble Beach. I was still a senior in high school. I was a customer service representative, also known as a cart boy, and <laughs> <laughs> those less delicate with the language. Um, so I pounced on Mulvoy and I said, oh, Mr. Mulvoy, my dream in life is to write for your magazine. And I'm an 18 year old kid. He runs the greatest magazine in the world. He has absolutely no use for me. So he gives me his card and pats me on the head and sends me on my way. But I went down to UCLA and every few months I'd send him a letter. You know, dear Mr. Mulvoy, I'm now covering you know, women's rugby for the Daily Bruin. And um, never got a response. And in fact, the woman who opened those letters was Joan Rosinski, who is still at the magazine. And we still laugh about this. So two years of letters, no response. So fast forward to summer of 93, which was my last summer at, as a card boy. And I'm flipping through the, um, the tea times and I see Mulvoy again. And I actually coming out the next day, which I wasn't even supposed to work. So I switched my shift just so I could be there. And I pounced on him, and I wish I could do his Beantown accent, mm. which I really can't. But okay. so I go to, oh, Mr. Mulvoy, Alan Shipnett, blah, blah, blah. And he says to me, and since this is a podcast, we can use profanity and apologies to anyone who's offended. He says, oh, yeah, you're the little shit ass who sent me all those letters. <laughs> he was paying attention. <laughs> he was. I mean, I don't think he ever read them, but he sort of knew they existed. And so the timing was quite fortuitous because the Golf Plus section was about to launch a few months later in January of 94. Oh. And he was realizing they could use an intern, I think. And at, at the same time, his daughter had just graduated college. She was looking for a place to live in New York. He was keenly aware of how expensive it was. So I, he said, send me a few clips. I might have something for you. So I've been you know, busting my butt for the Daily Brew. And I actually had a lot of good stories, or pretty good stories, to send him. I FedExed them to him. and. After some phone calls, and there's a whole there's a whole sidebar to this, which is this story's already getting too long. But he um, he gave me an internship, so I dropped out of UCLA and I flew to New York, January second, nineteen ninety four. Arrived in a blizzard, and there was no mechanism for an intern outside of the summer months. But since Mulvoy was a top guy, he just created this position for me, and he sent his secretary out to find a place for me to live because. Usually the interns like live in the NYU dorms in the summer, but that wasn't an option during the school year. So she found me this beautiful studio on the Upper East Side, exposed brick, had like a loft bed, <laughs> and it was they paid for it. And it was, it was just, talk about the right place at the right time. And a little hustle and determination, and that's how I started. Was that a paid internship? And they were paying me. I got $400 a week, but I had no rent. It was all like spending money. In, in January, it would have been your final semester at, uh, at UCLA? Well, that, that would have been, that was my junior year, basically. So when... Um, you still had a year and a half to go. You I had a year and a half. So I, and were you literally, in your mind, dropping out of college? No, it was, a, I, it was technically a leave of absence. I mean, I always assumed I would go back. But in, in the, the internship was eight months. It was going to end in August, so then I'd go back for the fall quarter. Did Mulvoy express any concern or interest that he was affecting your life's trajectory by basically well, encouraging you to drop out of college to pursue this internship? No, I think he, he rightfully saw it as improving my life's trajectory with this tremendous opportunity. And the Golf Plus section, it was conceived as this, this, this insert in the magazine that was going to be four, six editorial pages. And we had one writer who was our hero, Jaime Diaz. And we had one fact checker, Rick Lipsy, who you remember, of course. And that was it was a it was a small enterprise and then the advertising response was off the chart so this was the era of the great big bertha being introduced but pre-tiger which shows you mobile's genius pre-tiger but you know the big bertha had really just had just changed the equipment industry forever and the ad money was pouring in and they literally could not fill the pages and so 
they sent me out. My first, my first tournament was the Honda Classic, and I was just gonna help Jaime out. You know, he was overwhelmed. He was riding so much every week. It was incredible. And we love Jaime. He's he's a god in our industry, but he's not the fastest deadline rider, and he would admit that. And so, they just sent me out there to kind of be his errand boy, and. He told me to do a few things. He said, well, just write them up for me. And I did. And in, you know, they were just going to be kind of like files that he could massage and put in his own words. But he said, oh, this is pretty good. I'll just send it in. And so that was really the first time anyone in the office had seen my stuff outside of mobile because he didn't share my daily Bruin clippings with anybody. And so they said, oh, this, is, this kid, at least he can you know, form a sentence. So then they started sending me out to write stories. And I was not a full-time employee, so I didn't have a corporate Amex. I wasn't 21, so I couldn't rent cars back in those days. And I was, I didn't even have a computer. I had this loaner that was always breaking down. So I was totally winging it, but they started sending me out every week to do stuff. And the stories got bigger and bigger and bigger. And because I was, you know, ordinarily the managing editor of Sports Illustrated would not even know the name of one of the interns. But because I was this kid that Mobile had discovered on the first tee at Pebble and it was a cute story, he was more invested in my, my success or whatever. And so he was kept pushing them. And so I, I wound up going to, my first open, to go back to your question about 10 minutes ago, which was, um, that I covered was Oakmont 94, which was a, a classic. And, and a sauna. And a sauna. I remember Bob Martin, our photographer, he, he almost died of heat stroke out there. And, um, and it was Palmer's last time. I went to Palmer's farewell press conference. All the reporters around me are in tears. You know, I mean, it was really my first time ever seeing him in person. I was like, what's the big deal? Is this some old guy who missed the cut? But that gave me some insight into how beloved Arnie was. That's incredible. Yeah. Then uh, I didn't ever really appreciated how young you were or how far you still had to go in your UCLA career. So how did you eventually, did you eventually get your bachelor's degree from UCLA? Right. So, so at the end of the kind of early in the summer, Mulway said, kid, I got one more story for you to do before you go back to school. And it was on Ken Griffey Jr. Because Tom Berducci, who of course is our Hall of Fame baseball writer, for whatever reason had some bad mojo with Ken Griffey Sr., and he was having trouble getting the story of a junior. And since I was pretty much the same age, in fact, I was, I think we were both 21, Mulway thought somehow I would bro up with Griffey. And that's, I won't, that's a whole other sidebar, how that story came to be. But I basically extorted two interviews with Ken Griffey Jr. And that wound up being on the cover. And that and kind that's of- you became the youngest person ever ever cover story at Sports Illustrated at 21-ish? Yeah, supposedly. And so, so that kind of secured my, my life after school. So Mulvoy said, go back to school, and the day you graduate, we'll hire you. And in the interim, I became, my title was special contributor. And so I, was, I would cut class and fly off and, and write stories. And for the 95 US Open, I took my, my last final on a Wednesday, and, and then I caught a red eye into JFK, and I drove out to Shinny for the Open for Thursday morning. And, um, Amazing. Yeah, some, some crazy stuff happened. Wow, like you just got three great uh, early uh, U.S. Opens. Yeah. Uh, just, a, just a quick side note uh, on Jaime in that, in that uh, period. Jaime uh, is now at Golf Digest, and uh, as Alan alluded to, he's an absolute legend in our business. I'm sure the listenership knows the name well. Jaime. <laughs> H-Y-M-I-E, if, if you're looking for a phonetic uh, spelling of it. So Jaime in that period is, uh, excuse me, not in that period. It would probably have been a little earlier would be a guess, but maybe a little later. Um, he was the golf writer for the New York Times after another legend, Larry Dorman, who had been the golf correspondent for the New York Times, uh, went and worked for uh, Calgary Golf. So now Jaime's at the Times uh, as the beat writer, you can imagine. So um, Jaime goes out to Augusta. And he's taking a cab, and Alan's smiling already because he knows the story, but the <laughs> listenership does not. Uh, and uh, so, so Jaime uh, gets a cab from the Augusta airport, and he's going over to Augusta National, and he's got a uh, southern gent uh, driving over there. And, uh, and the guy says, uh, and what's your name? And, and, and Jaime says, it's, uh, it's Jaime. What do you do? He says, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. The guy says, Jaime Diaz, New York Times. Jaime, you a Jew? <laughs> it's it's so good. <laughs> Jaime is not a Jew. Herbert Warren Wynn earlier mentioned. I about fell out of my chair when I learned this. Herbert Warren Wynn could not be more British than anybody you've ever met in your life. Between 
the tweed coats and the Yale undergraduate degree and the Oxford graduate degree and flying for the RAF during World War II, Jew or not a Jew, Jew. That was a shocker to me when I learned that one. But let's, so you had three unbelievable <laughs> opens for your first open experiences. Yeah. The crazy, crazy weather at Pebble, yeah. Yeah. sauna at, uh, at Oakmont, and then spectacular days and nights at uh, that 95 uh, U.S. Open at yeah. uh, Shinnecock. Well, well so, the, so at Shinnecock, you know, it's kind of like, it's like Pebble Beach. Well, no, it's not even a good comparison. There's very, there's no high-rise hotels out in the Hamptons, right? So there's, it's hard to find a place to stay. So we rented this house for all the SI people. And it was, it was fun because none of the bedrooms even had desks. So there was just one dining room table. We'd all sit around and write, like four or five people. It was kind of like you'd picture in the movies. Everyone's like hunched over the computer and sighing and profanity and making like smart aleck remarks and it was it was quite collegial but on sunday night at like two in the morning we're all grinding on our, our magazine stories and and jaime he um he's like i'm just gonna take a little nap i'm so tired <laughs> he, he, he's like wake me up in 20 minutes so he goes and he lays down in the living room it was like literally the middle of the night and so i go and i do as i'm told i shake him he's like no 20 more minutes i said all right fine and so he does uh, this goes on like three or four times now i mean Deadline is coming, right? It's like 7 a.m. when you got to file. At this point, it's probably 3.30. I don't know. And I'm pretty much done. I want to go to sleep. And so I go back. He, he won't get up. So I, I had, these are the days of the CDs. I had my little, my Walkman and my little collection of CDs. And I take one out and it was Beck. And I put the song Loser on and I cranked it up. And that's how he had to get off the couch to turn off the music and finish his story. So that's always a, fun, a funny memory. That's funny. And th that leads to me thinking about uh, having to wake up uh, uh, golfers after 20 minute naps. Uh, you, you probably know this story. I think I've told you before. They've probably written it. But um, uh, after the 99 PGA Championship, which was uh, um, when Tiger beat uh, Sergio in Chicago at Medina, I believe. Is that Madonna? Yeah. And, uh, and I was flying to California where my wife's family uh, lives. Um, and I got upgraded first class on an American flight. And Fred Couples was, uh, happened to be sitting across the aisle from me. And we knew each other a little bit. And we're chatting. And Ben Crenshaw was going to announce the uh, Ryder Cup picks uh, the next day. And uh, Fred says, uh, and in those days, uh, you, you could make calls on a commercial flight. I remember that. With yeah. a little plastic phone. That, that was a lifesaver, yeah. Yeah, it was really was a lifesaver. So, so Fred says, uh, you know, I'm going to take a nap for 20 minutes, much like uh, Jaime did with you. Uh, you know, could you wake me up? Because I've got to call Crenshaw. Uh, so the 20 minutes passed. And uh, I, I think my memory is that, that Fred woke up on his own. He went, you know, reached in for the gray thing. And I went to the head because I wanted to give him a little, uh, a little uh, privacy. And he, he called Crenshaw, and he really wanted to make this Ryder Cup team. It was important yeah. to him. And, you know, Fred, you know, Fr Fred is uh, a Coppola, is uh, by Freddie actual Coppola, fact. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he gets very, he's dark, he's Mediterranean. And, and after a, uh, you know, four or six days uh, in the sun, he, he's really dark. Uh, but anyway, so uh, so I gave him a little space. I went to the head and, and spent a little time and talked to the stewardess, whatever, and, uh, and came back. And when I came back, Fred was ashen. And uh, I said, oh, you didn't get it, did you? And, uh, and he didn't, and he was upset. And it was just, the moment will stay with me forever because it was just such a little insight into Fred's mindset at that moment, which is there's something he really cared about. And it was that, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was making that uh, Ryder Cup. So, uh, well, so, so you th might this is the difference between me and you. I would have pretended to read and I would have eavesdropped on the entire conversation and then I would have written it down and then I would, I would have printed it. That's why you have so many friends in the game <laughs> and I don't because you're so discreet. You would have tweeted it out. Yeah, I would have invented Twitter just to tweet it. <laughs> um, what did, so who wrote the game story in 95 for Sports Illustrated or as Rick Lipsy used to call it, Sports Illustrated Magazine? I, and we'd be like, Rick, people know it's a magazine. It was, um, yes. <laughs> uh, we should pour out a little almond milk for, for Rick Lipsy. I think... Um, no, he's rich. Let's not. <laughs> some 75 Dom in that case. I think that would have, those were the Rick Riley years. Yeah, that would make I'm sense. I'm sure that would have been Riley. In fact, I know, yeah, he was there. And I remember he was doing TV for NBC. And 
um, that week as kind of a trial thing. And really? He, yeah, he was so into it. And I think it, that was their first U.S. Open, or maybe their second, but I think it was their first. Yeah, it was kind of a trial thing. It, it didn't take, but he was. I remember watching him run around. And if you, Tiger, he um, he hurt his his wrist in the rough and right. WD'd. And I remember Riley was sitting next to, in the press room next to Riley when it happened. He bolted out like Usain Bolt to go out there, and it's just so that was definitely his game story. Yeah. Uh, that was where I believe Cablanasian was introduced, if I'm not mistaken. I, not? I can't speak to that. I, I remember I remember Tiger dropping that on Oprah in '97, but I don't oh, know if it, sure Oprah '97, but that's much like oh, did, no, no, yeah. That? I think he was tired of it by '97. I think he tried it up, but I may be well. That's I might, interesting. Uh, uh, I might be mistaken here. Well, so I want to backtrack about 20 minutes here. So, the year you spent on tour in '85, as as a caddy writing this book, I mean, you have a lot of great friends among the players and some of it stems from that that year right i mean no question i mean and, and caddy relationships as well and other relationships it's amazing how many people that i met in that period are still around today all these years later i mean like brad faxon you you, you caddy for he was this young buck right how, how yeah. did that come to be yeah i wrote him much like you with mobile i wrote him a letter out of the blue uh asking if i could uh, uh caddy for him and uh and he said yes and uh He's, Brad is uh, about a year and a half younger than I, uh, but I've always felt like uh, he's sort of like an older brother in, in a sense. I'm always slightly nervous around Brad because I always feel like he could fire me for cause at any moment. But I really love Brad. I think he's doing a, a really a great job uh, with, the, the, with, the, with the Fox broadcast team. You and I have done a little uh, Fox work this week, and uh, it's impressive uh, how many moving parts there are to getting out that U.S. Open uh, telecast. And I think it's always been uh, an, a, a complicated show. And it's interesting, like the other day, you and I were talking to Lance Barrow, the uh, longtime producer for CBS, and he was talking about, you know, how hard it is for him to write a letter. Well, you and I can write letters, but that, that speed of, of how TV works um, – we're accustomed more like this, you know, <laughs> no, no, no one's rushing us along. So I mean, it's just interesting how you have so many golf fans and, uh, and it's neat and lucky for us that they want different things from different news sources. Um, whether it's your Twitter account or putting on Fox or putting on golf channel or reading, reading golf magazine or sports illustrated or reading golf.com. There are a lot of different uh, ways that they're going to acquire what they uh, what they need to know. I'm I'm always astounded that you know, some someone who's really into golf might say to me, "So, um, Tiger, uh, I didn't see his name in the U.S. Open uh, st starting times. What's up with that?" <laughs> you know, like they really know golf, yet they don't know golf, and uh, so we always have to keep those people in mind too. Yeah. Um, let's let's be honest here. Have we enjoyed our TV experience? Uh, I find it kind of thrilling, you know, that you're reaching so many people uh, so quickly. And uh, I like the challenge of trying uh, something new. And, uh, and I would say, yes, but I'm glad I don't have to make a living that way. How right. about yourself? How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, it, there... It, I don't feel any anxiety writing a deadline story anymore. I've done so many of them. Like before we go on, on air, there's, there's a little jitteriness. Like I don't want to screw this up because you can't, you can't erase it and start over like you can with a bad sentence. So there, there is that, that, that feeling of being on a, you know, a, a tightrope and there's no net beneath you. But I'm, I'm, I'm still I'm a little bitter about the whole thing because you and I put so much into our stories. And you can spend weeks reporting them, days bleeding on your computer every sentence means so much and you put it out in the world and you get, you know, some, some people on Twitter appreciate it and you might get a phone call from a colleague who liked the story and that's it. You go you go do two minutes on Fox. I have like high school friends I haven't heard from in decades are texting me. I have elementary school people, you know, hitting me up on Facebook. It's like, come on, man. It's so much harder to write a great story than it is to go and, and like talk out of your arse for two minutes on TV. But the scale of it is so big that, it gives you an insight into how powerful a medium it is. So I respect it, and I'm also embittered at the same time. Well, I can, I can, I can <laughs> yeah, I can, I can. That all, that all make, that all makes sense. <laughs> what? Uh, so let's see, '95, and then what? And then did you keep going to U.S. Opens after that? Yeah, I haven't missed one since then. 
And that's uh, how you got up to uh, your count, I think, is 24. 24 open. And this is 27 for yeah. me. Uh, uh, well, 24, and how old are you, Alan? I'm 44. Uh, now, we've been seeing Dan Jenkins here this week. What do you think his number is? Well, so people at Digest keep track of it. It's it's in the high 100s. Um, and that's astounding because we're just counting U.S. Opens. <laughs> yeah. No, well, that's all majors. I think is he, he's in the 60s for sure. Oh, got to be. I mean, he's yeah. probably been going to U.S. Opens since 1950. I mean, he missed he missed a couple early on. Um I think is it sixty five? I think I, that might be the number. But yeah, I actually did some math. If I go to every major championship, I can and let's say Jenkins finishes out this year and then stops going, which is possible because he's he's looking a little frailer than he had been. Um, I could catch Jenkins when I'm like eighty one or eighty two. Now, if he keeps going, mm-hmm. then it may be impossible. If he's mm-hmm. come for another five years, if he puts another, and we stopped going to the British Open, mm-hmm. and I don't think he went to the PGA because it was too hot and he wasn't into it mm-hmm. anyway. But I think he'll, he's he'll, a U.S. Open guy and a Masters guy. Yeah, so very much a Masters guy. But it, it, I think even more a U.S. Open guy. And that generation is, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, and 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 this might be a little bit of the difference in in, in our age. Is that like. And I really, really picked up on this in 85 when I first really got immersed in, in, I was already very active in golf, but really got immersed in professional golf. Uh, The aura of Hogan was still intense. Interestingly, it might be more intense now in ways uh, among certain people, but then it was broader. Uh, Hogan, Hogan, Hogan on the Hogan swing, the Hogan club, the Hogan uh, hitting a driver in play. Right. And, um, and of course, the U.S. Open model was, oh, you had tour events, tour events, tour events, and then you got to a U.S. Open, and it really, like Augusta was different because the greens were fast and perfect for the first time all year, but the U.S. Open was at another level altogether because narrow fairways, high rough, tree-line courses, fast greens, and the national championship. And it was like, and that was Hogan's event, you right. know, and that's really, that's part of Jenkins' legacy is right. elevating that, that, and it's part of Sports Illustrated's uh, uh, legacy is elevating. And now here we are, Aaron Hills, and uh, it's a funky leaderboard. It'll probably, it'll probably change, you know, it'll probably change over the next uh, couple of days here, but it's a neat course, but it's a wide open fairway, driver, 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 and, uh, even, you know, as relatively long, young as you are, but, you know, having been to the Pebble 92 and then your Oakmont 94 yeah. and then Shinnecock 95, those were U.S. Opens. This is a different kind of U.S. Open. So it's interesting in our lifetime how we've seen this thing evolve. Yeah. And, and I think the USGI, I don't know if they would literally ask themselves this question, but they must be on some level ask themselves the question, you know, how did the Masters eclipse us and what are we going to do to reclaim it? I was just going to say that. I mean, this generation of players venerates the Masters on a different level than the U.S. Open. And maybe it's it's the TV presentation they grew up watching, certainly Tiger, what he did in 97 and ensuing years. But, I, you know, 20 years ago, if you asked, if you did tour players, which major do you want to win? I'm sure the Open would have been the answer. And now, you know, it's overwhelmingly the Masters. So yeah. um, I'm not sure what the mystique is all about. You know, Nicholas in 86, who knows what it is, but... It, it has, it has, the Masters has just been on, it's just kind of gone up and up. And it may be that it's, there's birdies and there's eagles and there's excitement at the Masters. And we it's know, kind of like there is in theory, but in actual fact, there's not because it's been a while. But uh, Well, I mean, if you think about, yeah, there, there, it depends. But like, like when Schwartz all that year that he won, I mean, eight guys tied for lead on Sunday and what a shootout that was. Um, yeah, I think it's more like it's, you're in the club forever and uh, they're so rich. You know, it used to be the U.S. Open, that, you know, years ago. Like when Lou Graham won, they would say, you know, oh, winning the U.S. Open's worth a million dollars in endorsements. Well, now it's probably worth $25 million. So you're going to make money, but there are things that money cannot buy. And, of course, you know, that, you know, to use the phrase, you know, a seat at the table. In other words, you're at the Champions Dinner for the rest of your life. And basically being an honorary member of Gus National Golf Club is something that uh, guys really, really prize. And, and for whatever, you know, the U.S. Open isn't offering that same level of status. And, uh, you know, something I've learned only really recently come, uh, come to understand this, but it's really informed my writing life. But um, you, of course, know the writer and many of the listeners would as well, Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis, 
uh, venerated the writer Tom Wolfe, and he wrote a profile. I'm recommending you, Alan, if you haven't read it. I've read it. It's... Did I point it to you a while back, or maybe just found it on I just own? found it, but it's spectacular. It's a spectacular piece of writing. Yeah. So just to summarize in a minute, so here's this writer, Michael Lewis, who's great, and uh, someone you've ever known or met? No, even though he's a NorCal guy yeah. as well. And I've been spending some time in Berkeley. I, I'm, I'm kind of stalking him. I'd like to know what his coffee shop is. Yeah. Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, who wrote... The new new thing, which I think is the best thing that's ever been written about the internet. Yeah. It's from the nineties. Liar's so- poker as a kid. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he's right now about Tom Wolf and it's uh, like he's trying to figure out what's the secret that made that made Tom Wolf great. And uh, and the answer you know that I got from reading is that uh, people seek status. Yeah. And if you could you know, no matter what you do in your life, whether you're a caddy or a plumber or a writer or a TV personality, whatever it might be, you seek status. If you're a relief pitcher in baseball, you want to be, you know, the best relief pitcher in baseball. If you're, you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a, an enforcer in the NHL, you want to be the best, you know, you'll take some pride. People want status from their peer group. And uh, why am I going down this road, Alan? There must be a reason why we're speaking of status. Oh, the Masters. Thank you. And the Masters offers <laughs> yeah. more status to the peer group. Yeah. Than the U.S. Open does That's right true. now, and let me tell you something: who would vehemently disagree with this is Curtis Strange and many others who won the U.S. Open, not the Masters. Yeah, and I think it's cool that you know they're so proud of that, and uh, and they're probably right. There yeah. probably is more greatness to winning a U.S. Open than winning Masters. It's certainly harder to yeah. win a U.S. Open than winning a Masters. Um, and yet, I, and yet, I mean, I think a, a couple other things play into this. One is Greg Norman, the man who had everything. But, but never got the green jacket. And I think, I think that drove home the point you're making is that um, you just, no matter what you do in this life, you have, to, you have to win that jacket, and he never did. And then I think also, I mean, the list of winners at Augusta is the most glittering of any major championship by far. I mean, you're talking the greatest of the great. And the Open certainly has produced a lot of dynasties. Well, and that's partly due to style of golf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it encourages uh, brawn and finesse, whereas U.S. Open golf, the traditional U.S. Open golf, as you saw it at 93 at Oakmont, is point-to-point plotting golf. And that's why, you know, the, the, the three greatest of, let's say, post-war American golf, Hogan, Nicholas, and Tiger Woods, uh, for all their many skills, they thought their way around the golf course better than anybody, yeah. those three. Uh, you take that with tremendous drive and talent and you've got an incredible, and that was the thing that was, that was so prized by the peer group probably until, as you were saying earlier, that Callaway driver came out and it was like, how far can it hit it? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was definitely a trend. What was the, what was the first U S open game story that you wrote? Let me think about that. Cause I did, um, I did the nine when Riley left, right? Yeah. So I did the 99 PGA championship and that was, um, when Tiger beat Sergio, and that was the, wound up being the second cover story. Neat. Yeah, it's been kind of a, a, a while since that Griffey, and then, um, but then Riley left. And remember, there was that era where we were trying out different people because there was like Tiger fatigue. We were all writing so much Tiger. They said, "Let's we're gonna bring in some fresh voices." So like, remember that like, man Humphreys? Yeah, Tom Humphreys. That I was I was thinking the other day. You know, for all the meals we've had together, how few breakfasts we've had. Yeah. But there was one week when Tom Humphreys. We were at Burkdale, we were at Litham, maybe. Litham. It was in 2001, it was when and, Duval and, won. And, we, and, uh, and we, we rented a, a house together, and it was you, me, and Tom Humphreys yeah. from one of the Irish papers, Irish yeah. Times, or the Dublin Times of the Irish yeah. Times. And he had, and there was a breakfast place right there in the Village Square, yeah. and we had a number of breakfasts together, yeah. you and me and Garrity and Tom Humphreys. Uh, but, okay, so. It would have been, no, see, I guess it would have been 2001. That was, that was Southern Hills, Retief Goose. Oh, man. Talk about your sweat boxes. That was hot. That was hot. But you know what? That turned out to be, that was, that's a fun Retief story. Retief Goose won that U.S. Open? It, well, it was, it was really boring and then it was really thrilling because Sink missed that 18 incher mm-hmm. on the 72nd hole. And there was everyone, everyone just fell on their sword on the last green. And, but, so just a quick aside here, you know, people play these casual matches and they want to give these 18 inches. If you don't think an 18 incher is completely missable, you have no idea what you're talking about. Ask Stuart Sink. I mean, for, for real. So that was actually an interesting story. So, and Retief Goosen, we know, was a great golfer and an extremely boring person. Just was. The one thing that everyone knew about Retief Goosen, he'd been, he'd been struck by lightning. But that's all you ever heard. And I became obsessed with finding out more about this. And mm-hmm. so... 
for two days, you know, like after his press conference on Thursday and after his press conference on Friday, I, I waited him out and I said, who was with you the day you got struck by lightning? Like who, who was on the golf course? The first day he said, I don't want to talk about it. You know, I, I'd rather not speak to that. And then the second day I said, Retief, I'm not going to stop asking you. You got to tell me who was there. So he gave me the name of a guy. He said, I'm not in touch with him. This is basically pre-cell phones, really. And he said, I don't know how to reach him, but this is his name. And, and so with the time change in South Africa, I was staying up late every night trying to find this guy, calling golf clubs, calling every little lead I could find on this one person whose name escapes me. It's in the story. And I finally got him, like on, on I think it was Saturday night, about two in the morning. And he was waking up, I believe, on Sunday there. And I... And he told me everything and it was harrowing. I mean, he told me, you know, he ran, he saw it happen. He ran to Retief. The clothes had been burned off of his body. His, his shafts had been welded together in his bag. The smell, oh, the smell of burning hair was, was overwhelming. And that Retief had like swallowed his tongue that he like reached in, pulled his tongue out and he was screaming for help. And there was a doctor who happened to be on the next fairway. He came over and did like CPR and saved his life. And like, that was gold. Nobody had that. And you know, in these, when you're writing these magazine stories, you need to have information that nobody else does because your story comes out a few days later and the LA Times, the New York Times, and you know, even in that, the early days of the internet, people have already know Retief Goosen has won the US Open. How can you make it different? So getting this guy on the phone was tremendous. And then having that, that crazy finish and it went to a Monday playoff and you know, Monday is when, when Sports Illustrated goes to print. So that was a highly stressful situation. But Retief wound up, he was, I think, up four or five shots at the turn and kind of ended any doubt. And I could really write that story under a lot of deadline pressure. So that was, that, I'm pretty sure that was my first one. And it was memorable. Well, that's always been a hallmark of your game stories is, is good reporting. And, uh, well, we talked about this last time. And that follows the Sports Illustrated tr tradition. And, yeah. uh, well, I mean, that's what I learned from, from Riley. You know, yeah. everyone thinks of him as this stylist and yeah. this, 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 no all question. these great one-liners. But it was the reporting. And so... Um, That's a very, and I'd forgotten that about uh, about the guy uh, pulling out um, Retief's tongue, which might explain the uh, reluctance to talk uh, all these years <laughs> later, as it's uh, difficult to do. But the uh, the Afrikaner golfer, and we've had some experience with this, uh, uh, can be a challenge to write about. Uh, Ernie, a little bit, uh, Charles Schwartzel, uh, yeah. Louis Eustacen, and uh, Retief. I'm sure there are. Or other Afrikaners, I'm not thinking right now, but I had a similar thing where I was covering uh, King Louis' um, uh, win at the old course at St. Andrews, and he was going to win by a bunch. Didn't he win by a bunch? He did. And uh, and so I was in the same situation that you were in, uh, talking about Retief, and I'm, you know, he grew up on a farm yeah. in Africa, which is a beautiful sentence that what's her name began her book with. Yeah. I grew up on a farm in Africa, but anyway, he grew up on a farm in Africa. So I got his dad on the phone. And, uh, you know, uh, he's a dairy farmer. And uh, I said, oh, uh, you know, I don't really know too much about dairy farms. I said, oh, uh, how many uh, cows do you have there? He says, 87. And I said, oh. But, like, it's, he's not a chatty guy. I'm looking for stories. I'm yeah. like, dude, I need stories. I got to fill up, you know, I got to write 2,200 words here. Help me out. 87. Uh, how many of your cows uh, have names? And... Uh, Vince Sickles, Gary Vince Sickles sitting next to me. He's like, how many of his cows have names? Is that really the best you've got? And the guy says, uh, one. I said, oh, what's, what's that cow's name? Elmer. I was like, could you please give me something more, like more than one sentence, but that's how it goes to our business. Can you describe Elmer's personality? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a cow. Bovines do not have personalities by definition. <laughs> Well, but it can be uh, tough. Like this yeah. J.P. Fitzgerald guy is from McElroy. McElroy is winning that British Open at wherever he went at Hoylake. And yeah. um, Hoylake, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, that sounds right. And uh, so it's Saturday night. And uh, I know J.P. a little bit. And uh, I said, can I get you? Can I get He doesn't like talking to reporters. I said, can I get one question? And he, I, I get one question and he gives me a, you know, a four-win answer. And then uh, and I start going to the second question. He says, you said one question. I said, Okay. Yeah. Oh, it, it doesn't always work out. So actually when Schwartzel won and again, that was a absolutely zany Sunday when so many things happen and we could have had so many sexy winners and then Schwartzel pulls it out. And again, he was a good player who'd, who'd won a fair amount around the world, but really knew very little about him. And, and so I got him on for a brief moment on after his press conference, before he got in the cart 
to go to back to Butler cabin to celebrate with his family. And someone had, had told me that he, he was that Schwarzer liked to go in the bush and hunt big game. And that, that's pretty good. You could write, you get a couple paragraphs out of that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, he's sitting on the car, they're about to away. I said, Charles, I understand you're a hunter. He says, yeah, I like to get out there and, you know, chase the animals. And I said, you know, have you ever brought down any of the big five? You know, he's like, well, yeah, that's a good story. And then the guy says, sorry, we got to go. And the cart zooms away. I'm like, oh, kills me. So now he, I know the choreography quite well of Sunday night at the Masters. So he's done his press conference. He's going back to Butler Cabin. They give him like 15 or 20 minutes to be with his family. And then they walk out of Butler Cabin and they walk to dinner with the membership in the clubhouse. And there's about a 50 yard walk. And so I decided this was potentially such a good anecdote that I knew nobody else had. I'm going to wait it out and I'm going to get him then. I, I, it's, even though the deadline pressure is immense, I'm dying to start writing my story. I make the decision it's worth it to wait 20 or 30 minutes because this could be this could be great. It could be very colorful and maybe uh, it could, you know, kind of it could make the whole story. And so I'm kind of hanging out and even though it's Sunday night and everything is getting taken down, there's a lot of people coming and going. It's still Augusta National where they're very uptight, right? And, uh, there's one security guy comes by and he looks at my badge. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting to do an interview. He says, okay. And that was it. But he, he didn't, it wasn't mm. a fully sad. So he's kind of lurking. And so, so Schwarzel comes out of Butler cabin and Billy Payne has arm around him and they're yucking it up. And so now I have like a split second choice to make. Do I go and try and get a word in with Billy Payne, you know, right there or do I just let it go? Mm -hmm. I've already invested a lot of time in this. And I'm kind of desperate. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have that much on the winter. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm going in. I'm going in. I'll, I'll put my shrapnel jacket on and I'm just, I'm just going to see what happens. And so I walk up and they're in mid-sentence. But they're walking. I mean, I literally have only like maybe 20 seconds to answer this question. I can't wait it out because they're not standing. They're walking towards this dinner. Once you get into the dinner, you can't get up there. Right. Although I did with Zach Johnson. That's a whole other story. Uh -huh. and so... And I just walk away and say, Mr. Chairman, I'm sorry. Uh, I was in the middle of a conversation with Charles earlier and we didn't get to finish it. And I just wanted to ask him one quick question. And he recoils like I'm holding a cobra in my hand. And He being Billy or? Billy. Uh, Charles didn't really care. He would have answered the question. Right. But Billy recoils and he says, <laughs> he's like, son, this is not the time nor the place. And they keep mm -hmm. walking. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, whatever. But then the security guy who'd been lurking this whole time, he comes up to me and he says, um, that was not appropriate. I said, I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm a reporter. He's a golfer, I had a question to ask. He said, we're gonna help get you off the grounds a little faster tonight. So he gets on his walkie talkie. Can we get security to, you know, bother cabin? I'm like, really? I mean, this is so silly. And so they got a guy to come and like drive me in a cart and his job was to like evict me from the grounds. And I kind of gave him the slip in the old, this was the old press room. There was different ways you could get in. He yeah. went right, I went left. He didn't know where I was sitting. I just, I gathered all my stuff up and I just, I just walked out yeah. and, and went back to the house to write. Cause I didn't want like to be seen by the entire press corps being let out by my earlobe. Right. And, but so, you know, that was, that was an attempt to do some original reporting that failed miserably. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you use an interesting word there because, you know, to return to the theme of TV versus, you know, writing, which is what we really do. But TV is appropriate and uh, they seek to be appropriate. Understandably, if you look at Fox, they have a relationship with the USGA. They need to honor that relationship. And I, and I respect that. But we don't work for anybody except for Sports Illustrated and Golf.com and related properties, but basically Sports <laughs> Illustrated. And our bosses really are as old fashioned as it sounds, the readership. And, uh, and what's appropriate for us is within, uh, you know, the guidelines of, uh, of what is ethical to bring them a story, tell them something they don't know, engage them. And um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's so much more gray area in what we deem to be appropriate versus uh, what TV does. So it's really a very, very different uh, sort of thing. But you know, maybe that's why we have s some value that we could bring uh, to, to TV. Um, but I think it's also why we like to do what we do. I mean, you have to ask the question, do I have any regrets about that situation? Zero, because 
if I hadn't tried, I would have felt like I completely let myself down and 3.1 million subscribers because maybe it would have been the greatest hunting story of all time. Yeah. And it could have, it could have been spectacular and it was, it was worth, you know, getting hassled over. But I mean, the difference is if I had walked up with a camera and a sound guy and a lighting thing, they would have stopped and done the interview because it's like, I don't, people are mesmerized by the apparatuses, you know, it's like, right. Ooh, it's TV. We got to do this. So it was. It was. It's an interesting dynamic. Or you and the crew would have never been there in the first place because you would have known that that area is off limits. Right. And and there's rules to yeah, be followed. Yeah, that's true. Well, rules are not to be followed. They're suggestions, and we can. That's our view. We can that's apply them as necessary. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Michael, as always, a pleasure, Alan. This has been tremendous. This is. We're gonna make. We're gonna serialize this. We're gonna. Okay. Can, this conversation's not ending. It's just being paused, and we're gonna get back Good. to it. So. All right. All right. It was Enjoyable. fun. All right. Thank, thank you. you. And um, I should thank the listeners for putting up with us. Hopefully, some of this was of was of interest or value to you. If not, we'll return to our, our regular programming with lesser-known figures in the game like major championship winners and uh, assorted others. But thanks for listening, and this is Alan Shipnuck for The Knockdown, signing off.